Paging Dr. Randy. Paging Dr. Randy. I just got on call and they're paging me already. They want me to do work as soon as I get to work. Come on, let's go. Yes, you, come on. Well, I'm Dr. Randy, nice to meet you. I'm a licensed family medicine physician. Since you're on call with me today, I want to make sure you learn as much as possible. Me and a few of my special friends are here to give you all the tips and info you need to live a balanced, healthy life. Are you ready to be on call with me? I hope so. So let's get it going. Our shift starts right now. So welcome back, healthy people, to another episode of On Call with Dr. Randy. Today we have Brian, Texas' own PV graduate, a.k.a. Dr. Trinika Jefferson. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. (laughs) I appreciate you being on. So this month is Autism Awareness Month. So I wanted to have Dr. Jefferson on to talk about autism. But before we get into the nitty gritty of it, tell us a little bit about your educational background. Okay, so as you stated, um, went to Prairie View. My didn't really know what I wanted to be when I got to college. I just knew I was going. So my bachelor's degree is in criminal justice, specializing in juvenile justice. So I knew for sure that I wanted to work with kids in some type of capacity. Um, after that, I graduated in 2006 with my bachelor's. Um, I wanted to keep the party going. So I stayed at PV, (laughs) got my master's in juvenile forensic psychology. So at that point, I thought I was going to be a forensic psychologist. Um, graduated with my master's in 2009. And from there, that's when I got into the work field and I started working. So the first job that was offered to me was doing applied behavior analysis therapy, um, working for the state. And so I had no idea what that was. I just knew I needed a job to start paying bills and knocking down the student loans. And so the first thing that they told me was that, oh, you may want to use applied behavior analysis therapy to work with your clients because they gave me basically the toughest um, unit to uh, provide Mm -hmm. therapy to. And so with that, they offered to pay for postgraduate courses in applied behavior analysis. So I'm like, okay, bet, free education. And so from there, I took postgraduate courses through the University of North Texas. And so I did that for two years until I completed the postgraduate coursework. And then I tested with the behavior analysis certification board. And so I did practicum hours and then I um, passed in 2014. And so from there, I became a board certified behavior analyst. Once Texas gave behavior analysis licensure in 2018, um, I became a licensed behavior analyst for the state of Texas. So I worked for a few years. And then in 2017, I was still kind of battling if I wanted to do forensic psychology as far as a doctor program or if I wanted to stay in the field of applied behavior analysis. So by this time, I had been working in the field of applied behavior analysis since 2009, and I fell in love with it. So I decided to just to stick with it because I couldn't see myself doing the traditional type of therapy and someone coming to talk to me and telling me their problems. I figured like that wasn't for me. And so I got my doctorate in applied behavior analysis in 2021, and it's been up since. And so I'm a doctorate level um, board certified behavior analyst. So that's my doctoral journey. 
Okay, that's what's up. You kind of sound like me a little bit as far as undergrad at PV and sticking around and get your master's. It's like, man, I'm just, I'm not ready to go. It's so much fun <laughs> on the yard. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so what made it so special for you as far as focusing or your interest in behavioral analysis? So when I started doing it, I had no idea what it was. And so it was more of a hands-on approach as far as changing human behavior. Um, it was more objective for me. So um, the type of therapy that we do is changing behavior in a sense that where we're manipulating the environment. So it's not just sitting, talking to someone, because everyone that I work with, half of them don't have vocal language. And so once I got a chance to actually see physically the interventions that I was doing with them and their behavior change, such as if it was a kid that I'm teaching communication skills to, and they've never said their mom name before. And now they could actually say mom, like that's life changing for me. Like that's where I grew my passion with actually wanting to stay in my field and loving what I do. Or if they were never able to like sign juice before, cause they love grape juice, but now they can. And that actually helps them be more independent. Or if a kid that they're 12 years old and they've never learned how to independently use a restroom before, and now they could go into the restroom and use it on their own. So things like that, as far as like, I could actually see like what I'm doing that is working and, you know, they may not be completely independent 100%, but they're better off than before they started therapy. And part of your background training was focused in autism? It was not. Um, so the field of applied behavior analysis is heavy weighted on working with kids with autism. That's where a lot of jobs for ABA therapy comes from. A lot of the grant funding comes from working with kids with autism. Um, but my training, I did a, my dissertation and a thesis basically with performance management. So when you think about behavior analysis, it's basically everything in life that you know is alive that I could do applied behavior analysis therapy with. Um, so I did performance management. So part of improving staff performance, you know, at their job. So I could really do applied behavior analysis with anybody. I've done it with boyfriends. I could do it with family members. I could do it with dogs. So <laughs> it really doesn't matter. It's just the funding sources are typically with kids with autism. Um, but I started out working my first eight to nine years in um, my field. I worked with adults. And all of them did not have an autism diagnosis. Um, they were duly diagnosed either with an intellectual disability or some other mental illness. Okay, so let's go into autism because I am not trying to get analyzed today. So we're going to focus <laughs> on the autism. <laughs> so if, oh man, oh man, Lord Jesus. So let's talk about autism. So the common person, a lay person who may be listening has heard of autism, but they don't know the exact, definition of what autism is. So how would you explain it to someone? So autism, um, a lot of people have their assumptions or things that they read or heard about, you know, how people get autism. Um, but the facts are it's a genetic, you know, disorder. Um, and it's also influenced by different environmental factors as well. So basically it's, um, it has to do with brain development. So it's very complex. So typically a person with autism, you'll see deficits in their uh, social communication skills, their interaction skills. Um, you'll see deficits in them like repeating uh, things over and over, 
or repetitive things such as like lining up objects in a manner that, you know, shouldn't be lined up. Um, also, some of them may have uh, some excesses in maladaptive behavior. So they may have tantrums, they may cry, they may have aggression, self-injury, non-compliance, um, any type of behavior that's problematic, you may see that in a person that has autism as well. But more so definitely deficits in the social um, social skills, communication skills, and also those repetitive behaviors or interests in items and things like that. But it varies. So like one way. <laughs> yeah. So what have been some of the uh, common myths that people have told you that they think that their kid have gotten autism from? Because I know one of the common ones for me as a healthcare provider is like the vaccines. That's what's causing kids mm-hmm. to get autism. Yeah, that's the number one that, that I hear is the the childhood vaccinations are is what has caused their child or other children to have autism. Mm-hmm. So are there, like, what are the early presenting signs for a kid having autism? Um, It really varies by individual. Um, If the person is, for example, if you have a typical developing kid um, and then you have another kid and if you're comparing like, okay, if your other child, their developmental was basically on track with other typical developing kids, but now you have another kid and you notice that their developmental um, milestones are delayed, um, really the most of the time the parent like knows like that there's something that is off track with their kid. They may not initially be able to pinpoint it. Um, but some of the initial milestones, like if they're not making joyful facial expressions or smiling by six months, um, that's one of the signs. Or by nine months, if they're not imitating uh, sounds that, you know, other people are making or babbling, goo goo gaga uh, by 12 months. Um, that may be an early warning sign. Or if they're not imitating like gestures. So if you're pointing um, to different objects and they don't point to different objects, that may be an early warning sign as well. Or by 16 months, if they have no you know, vocal language at all, that may be um, a sign. Um, or if, they're, if you're trying to make uh, back and forth communication with them and they don't do back and forth communication or if they don't use like two word phrases, things like that by 24 months or at any given point of their life, if they have regression in like social communication skills um, or if they used to babble and now they don't babble anymore, that may be an early warning sign, but it may look different by the kid. So what I always kind of like to do in these type of conversations that I have is just kind of give an example, a case scenario and what parents should do, because there might be someone who's out there listening now and their child is going through this right now. So let's just say there's a kid, their parent noticing they're not meeting their milestones. They're about one years old. They're not babbling. They're not crawling as much. What early intervention should that parent do as far as take their kid to a pediatrician, come see you, what should they do? Yeah, well, they'll have to initially go to their primary care physician and let their primary care physician, you know, know that they've noticed some delays in their kids' developmental milestones and request that their physician do just a general developmental screening and also an autism-specific screening. And from there, if their PCP... um, if from that, the screening, if they indicate 
um, deficits in the, any areas, just as the screening, then that PCP can recommend a more in-depth evaluation be conducted by either um, a neurologist, a psychologist, um, or a pediatrician. And once that pediatrician does the full in-depth evaluation, then depending on the deficits that were um, that came out of that evaluation, then they can refer to other specialized therapists. So if there were deficits in communication, they could see a speech therapist. If there were um, deficits in like uh, in their speech, language, or hearing, they could see an audiologist. Um, any deficits in their movement or sensory, they could see a physical therapist or occupational therapist. Um, if they had deficits in nonverbal or verbal abilities, they could see a psychologist. And then if they had more issues as it relates to problematic behavior, as I discussed before, they could see someone like me, a behavior analyst. So, or they may see a combination of all of these, you know, mm -hmm. specialized therapists. Typically the kids that have autism that I see, they see me, the behavior analyst, and they also see PT and OT. So it all depends on mm -hmm. what actually they need to work on. Okay. How important is it to get that early intervention? It's like the most important thing. Um, <laughs> one of my pet peeves is hearing other people that, you know, they may be in denial about their kid, you know, having an autism diagnosis or they don't, they suspect it, but they don't want it to be reality where they actually get that confirmation that their kid has an autism diagnosis. Um, basically what it does is like you're doing your kid a disservice if you don't get early intervention. Um, the chances of them being more successful and being, you know, independent and will learn whatever skills that they need to learn or problem behavior that needs to be reduced is better it, for it to start at an early age, as opposed to, you know, parent being in denial or don't have access to services, because sometimes that happens. And, you know, the kid end up, you know, growing up, now they're a teenager, now they're adult. Um, we've all heard of those instances in the news where, you know, autism kid got lost. They never learned safety skills mm -hmm. or, you know, they end up getting shot because they didn't know that they couldn't fight the police officer. So issues like that is like you really are doing them a disservice if you even initially just get it ruled out um, because they it may be simple things that they could work on or maybe more complex things or problematic behavior that needs to be addressed. So. Early intervention is the number one thing that the parent could do once they get that autism diagnosis. How tough is those conversations for you as a provider, kind of talking to those parents and letting them know about their child? Like, hey, this is this is kind of what's going on and trying to ease their concerns and let them know that you're trying to help them out. So by the time they get to me, they've already gotten the autism diagnosis. So they've already gotten that from their medical profession. So when they get to me, they're more so focused on how can you fix my child? Um, they're wanting the immediate quick fix. And it's like, well, with most therapies, there's no quick, you know, turnaround. So it's having those hard conversations as far as like, this is a process. And this may be a process that they have to, you know, go through with the rest of their lives. Maybe, maybe not. We don't know because everybody responds to, you know, therapy differently. Um, and also getting them to understand that, you know, we all have to be on the same page. Everything has to be consistent. Like you can't drop them off at therapy with me and I train you on what to do with the kid at home and then you don't do it. <laughs> it's like, you know, these skills have to generalize to other settings in order for your kid to be as successful as possible with doing this type of therapy. Um, also letting them understand like, okay, well, you want your kid doesn't speak 
you know, any vocal language right now at all, your expectations have to be realistic. Because I've had parents ask me like, okay, well, they're starting therapy with you. Will they be talking by next month? And I'm like, I, I can't, I can't promise you anything. I can promise that I'm going to give you evidence-based treatment and we're going to, you know, do our best as possible. But I can't say that your kid is going to be talking next month when they can't even babble right now. So letting them understand like the consistency and having realistic expectations out of the treatment their kid is getting. So what's the average age that a kid comes to see you by? Three. So the screening process, um, initially, a lot of parents may notice things that, you know, may be quote unquote off with their kids around six to 12 months or sometime even sooner, um, may notice some signs of autism. Um, They can start screening at about one year, yeah, one years old. And then at two years, they could actually get a diagnosis. By the time they see me, um, the earliest they can see me as far as what insurance will pay for, um, unless a parent wants to pay out of pocket, which is fine. I accept all money, um, but insurance will pay out at age three. Okay, so let's just say a kid comes to see you age three, initial visit. So how does that go for the parent and how does that go for the child and you assessing them on their initial visit? Okay, So I think I just ran into initially talking about um, applied behavior analysis therapy, but I didn't explain exactly what that is. So typically in our world, we are either trying to reduce any type of problematic behavior or we're trying to increase some type of adaptive or um, skill that they should know for their age range. So sometimes the kid may not have, you know, problem behavior that needs to be addressed, but they need to learn how to independently use the restroom or fine motor skills like tying their shoes or buttoning their clothes or doing household chores, um, making their bed, washing dishes, things that will make them more independent. Um, So it all depends on where they're currently at. So in my field, we initially do like verbal language, um, social assessments to figure out what the starting point for this um, particular person is. And based off of the deficits that we find in those assessments, that's basically our starting point, whether it's uh, social play skills, communication, adaptive skills, whatever that may be. And then we program from there. Now, if it's problematic behavior that we're addressing, so for example, if a kid you know, has physical aggression, they've beaten up everybody in the household, what we initially do is called a functional analysis. So that functional analysis or functional behavior assessment is going to tell me the why. And um, with all of us, we all do something for a particular reason. And so we break it down into specific categories. Whatever behavior that you're doing, you're either doing it for attention, you're doing it to escape or avoid um, different situations, people, environments. You're doing it just because it feels good to you or you're doing it to gain access to something. Once I figure out that why, then I do behavior programming to teach you how how you could get this why more appropriately. So if you hand your little sister so you could get mama attention, I'm going to teach you a more appropriate way to get your mama attention. Or if you have an tantrum because you want your iPad, then I'm going to teach you how to request the iPad more appropriately other than, you know, having the problematic behavior. So initially we start out with different assessments, whether it's skill or behavior assessments, and then move on to the programming that we're actually going to implement with that particular person. Okay, so let's kind of stay on this. Mm -hmm. Oh, you got one more? No, I was trying to make sure I answered your specific question that you asked me, because I (laughs) I may go down a rabbit hole sometime. 
<laughs> no, no, no. You did a good job. You did a good job. So just kind of trying to go on the same track as far as, let's just say, using the aggressive child. Um, how do you build up a bond between you and that child and trying to help them? Because a person like you're a stranger and you're trying to help them deal with their aggression. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I never initially start therapy and tell them what to do or place demands on them. I come in like, I'm, I'm going to be your best friend. I build rapport with them. I'm playing whatever they like to play with. I'm playing with it too. Like you like to play with Legos. You like to play with toy trucks. Okay. I'm laying here on this floor and I'm playing toy trucks with you or you on your iPad, whatever it is that from assessments that I found out that's reinforcing for you or your preferred items or activities, I'm doing that with you. So you don't see me as an aversive person. Like, okay, this lady came in and just started telling me what to do. I'm about to fight her too. So it's like my at least two, three initial sessions that I had with that, that person. I'm not going to say kid because I've worked with adults as well. Um, is is building that rapport. But it's not just with the actual client. I perceive the parent or the caregivers or whoever else is in that household um, to be my clients as well. Because a lot of it is the buy-in from the parent. I can't expect them to do the programming that I'm teaching, you know, their child and they don't like me. <laughs> so I try to build that relationship with the parents as well. So they could trust me. And then they're more likely to, you know, do what, you know, okay, well, Dr. J did say to do this and don't do this. And, you know, I like her, so I'm gonna do what she say. So things like that. It's like getting that buy-in from anyone in the household. Cause I bring in the other siblings into the sessions as well, depending on what exactly needs to be worked on. Um, if daddy ain't at home, mm-hmm. I was like, okay, well, let's let's get daddy on Zoom because he needs to be here too. So situations like that, it's like I, I need everyone involved because ultimately when I'm out of the picture, y'all need to continue to, you know, run programming as if I'm not here at all. All right. So how often, I know it kind of varies by case by case, just like physical therapy, somebody going in for back pain issues, but how often does a client come in to see you? Is this something weekly or they come once a month? It really varies. Um, so if we're talking about from uh, insurance billing component, it depends on the mm-hmm. level of need of the client, the medical necessity. So some kids um, that may be a level three as it relates to the autism levels, they may need, of course, a lot more support because their autism is more severe. They may not have any uh, vocal, verbal language. They may not interact with other people. They may have very problematic behavior. They may be very sensitive to crowds and noise, um, have different physical ailments, things like that. So the insurance company may approve 40 hours of ABA therapy for this kid. But for example, if they're a level one, which is, you know, less severe, more the higher functioning individuals that may have just more so social deficits and um, lack communication skills. They may talk, but they may not know how to um, initiate or maintain um, communication with someone. They may not be as organized with planning and different things like that. They're not going to need 40 hours of ABA therapy in a week. They may only need 10 or five. And then also some um, organizations or businesses, for example, they may only do focused ABA. So for example, for my current job, um, I run a clinic underneath Harris County. My clients there only see once a week for one hour. That's because like I ask parents, what's the most important thing that you want your kids to learn or to not do right now? 
like, okay, well, most importantly, like they have self-injury, you know, they're head banging. And so like, hey, we're going to focus just on that because I'm only giving you one hour a week. So it's not like mm-hmm. um, private practices where the kid, you know, you know, building insurances and they may get 40 hours, you know, out of the week because their autism is more severe. So it varies by insurance and then the type of program that your kid is admitted in, if it's focused or if it's more comprehensive. Comprehensive, you're going to get more hours. Focus, you're, we're focusing on the exact need at the moment that will make this kid more independent, um, reduce harm to either themselves or other people. Now, I'm glad you brought up the uh, insurance issue because I always like to give like my listeners a peek behind the curtain and let them know some of the things that we we deal with on our side. So are there any times where you feel like you have to fight the insurance on behalf of your patients because oh, you Lord. feel like they need more time and they're like, nah, we, they, we feel like based upon our criteria, they only need 20 hours. Uh, yeah, just being a mental health professional in general, like if you're really passionate about what you're doing and you're really trying to help people and you're not just doing it to, you know, get the bag or whatever to pass by time, you're an advocate for your clients. If I know my client needs 40 hours, I'm calling the insurance company like, you know, every day, multiple times out of the day. I got them on both of my phones on hold because I want my client to have the best services um, because of their level of need. It's like they're not going to benefit from one hour of therapy once a week because their behaviors are too severe. Their skills, you know, they they lack a lot of communication skills. They can't do X, Y, Z. They need more than that. So you definitely have to be an advocate, um, specifically working with kids, you know, with autism or any type of special needs. Um, even with my own practice, I tell the parents of their kids, I was like, do you need me to go to the school with you? Like I'll sit in the art meetings. It's like, I will advocate for you because they need services inside the school as well. So you kind of mentioned it earlier, talking about having all the family members involved in the treatment plan. So what are the things that you give the parents to work on when they go home, like the homework for them? Well, it varies by whatever skill or behavior that's being addressed for that kid. So one of the things that we do with applied behavior analysis therapy is parent training. So every two weeks or once a month, I'm either, you know, doing on, you know, HIPAA Zoom, um, training that parent. It could be on that kid's actual program that um, that we're working on with the kid, or it could just be on basic behavior analysis principles in general. Like I'm teaching you how to do positive reinforcement and rewarding your kid in the correct way. I'm teaching you um, how to prompt your kid with using a prompt hierarchy, things like that. So the work that they're given, it could, of course, vary by whatever skill deficit or behavior that, you know, I have them working on with the kid. But yeah, they, they get homework. And so I like to make sure that whatever I'm teaching, that the parent knows exactly how to do it. So, you know, I'm testing their competency. It's like, okay, I'm going to do this and then I'm going to watch you do it just to make sure that mm-hmm. they're doing the program, you know, as written, that treatment integrity component of it. Mm-hmm. And so this might be seeming like a simple question, but how do you know if they do their homework? Are there certain things that you're looking for when that uh, client returns to see if they met those milestones or regressed in some kind of fashion? Yeah. So one of the main things I could tell is if I'm working on a particular skill with the client and say I'm only seeing this client like once a week for an hour, I've trained the parent on how to do the programming and this kid continues to basically, you know, master in progress in this particular goal, 
It's like, I know the parent, like, I know you're working on, you know, shoe time with your kid, you know, how I asked you to, like, at least, you know, three times out the week for 30 minutes, like work on this skill with them. Um, that's like a telltale sign because like, oh, the next session, they, they knocking it out. They knocking it out. They, you know, the progress from step three to step 11 since the last time I seen them. It's like, okay, I know mama is working on this with them at home, as opposed to um, some parents aren't as adamant with implementing skills on their own. Um, and like, if I see that regression or sometimes the parents tell me, they're like, well, I just don't have time. <laughs> and mm-hmm. You know, if I, for example, I worked with triplets before, all three triplets had um, an autism diagnosis. And what I was working on with them was them being more independent with using the restroom. But the only thing that they really needed to progress in was wiping themselves independently. So they will come to my clinic and basically they, they mastered wiping themselves in my clinic. I didn't have my staff. We didn't have to do anything. They would go in there, do what they got to do. They ran their program on their own. When I would do parent training with mom, like, okay, well, how's it going, you know, at home? And she was like, oh, well, I'm still wiping them. And I'm like, why? (laughs) It's like you (laughs) sent them to me for a particular reason to learn a particular skill. They learned it, but it doesn't matter if you're not implementing the same skills at, at home. They're only at my clinic X amount of time, X amount of days out the week. And they're going to be discharged soon. <laughs> like, this isn't a long-term <laughs> program. So what really matters is what you're doing at home. It doesn't matter, you know, the skills that they're learning here, if you're going to do it for them. Right, right. So you kind of mentioned earlier talking about kids having to see all kind of different specialists. So they're seeing PT, they're seeing speech therapy, they're seeing you. Like, do you coordinate care as far as y'all talking to each other and seeing what kind of milestones that they're not reaching? Yeah. So typically what I do is at the initial intake meeting that I have with the parent regarding uh, therapy services for the kid, I ask the parent, you know, what other specialized therapies is the kid seeing? Just because I don't want to do anything that's contraindicated with what the speech therapist is doing, because I teach, you know, language and communication as well. And so it's like for us to be on the same page with each other, like, okay, well, you know, they're teaching, you know, them to communicate with using um, picture communication exchange systems or, you know, picture cards or with pointing or gesturing. I want to make sure that we're not doing anything that's going to negatively, you know, affect each other's therapy. And so I have those conversations with them, like, you know, can you send me the treatment plan that you're working on? And a lot of times they may reach out to me because, the kid may have problem behavior doing uh, OT sessions. And so they were like, hey, you know, Dr. J, like, how do you intervene, you know, when they fall out to the ground and have a tantrum and they're kicking and screaming? Like, what do you do in your sessions? And so I'm like, okay, great. Like, I actually get a part, be a part of other specialized therapy. So that's the, the great thing about working in a team of people. So a lot of times with different jobs, I work in an interdisciplinary or multidisciplinary team where we get all kind of feed off each other. Like, okay, well, what are you doing and how are you addressing this? Or I may use different types of edible reinforcers um, in my programming, but it's like, okay, well, I need to talk to the nutritionist because maybe they can't, you know, eat M&Ms or, you know, maybe, you know, the texture is they on a puree diet and I don't even know that. So, (laughs) 
with is very important as far as my profession um, when we're working with you know kids with autism or any type of you know developmental disability or special needs that we kind of consult with all other specialized therapies just to make sure that we're on the same page and you know we're not doing anything that's going to be detrimental to another specialized therapist with them progressing in that therapy as well. And of course, like to help out, like, okay, I'm always in the mix of the other therapies because um, a lot of times my clients have behavioral issues <laughs> that need to be addressed just so that therapy can be successful because a lot of times you can't, they can't get past certain goals because they didn't have a tantrum for the whole hour while, you know, they was with the speech therapist and she isn't trained in behavior analysis. So she really, she could intervene, but like, she don't know what's maintaining the behavior. She don't know the consequences and, um, the different interventions that we're using to decrease that behavior and the skills that we're teaching um, so they can gain access to what they want to more appropriately. Yeah. So you talked about like PT, OT, speech therapy, you meeting with them. So what's kind of your game plan or how do you interact with kids who are actually in school? How do you help them with their schooling and working with the, I know you mentioned ARG meetings earlier. Some people may not know what those are, but I mean, you can break it down for them. But how do you work with the schools? Yeah. So when I mentioned ARD, I don't know, that may be a Texas specific thing, but basically if your kid <laughs> is in special education classes, um, at least on a yearly basis or as needed, because the parent can request them as well, is when um, the teachers, maybe the paraprofessionals, the parents, whoever else is providing services in the school for the kid, they have a meeting for the kid to go over programming or kind of like on an as needed basis. So like, okay, well now we need, you know, to implement some type of behavior support because now they're having behavior issues um, and to review different goals and the treatment plan for the kid inside of the school. Um, you asked, how do I, where do I come in mm -hmm. in relates to the school? So right. with my current job, we can't cross over into the school system because there are special education laws where the school is supposed to <laughs> provide behavioral support. Um, however, sometimes it's not always done <laughs> or done in the most effective manner, depending, you know, on the school, on the school district, um, how much advocacy the the kid and the parents have, um, but we aren't allowed to cross over to that. Now for my own business, I, me and my staff, we go inside the school district and we do um, ABA therapy in the school with the kids. So we may pull them out and take them to the library or to the hallway or to some area where of course their dignity is still maintained. And it's not like, Oh my God, like this Billy is getting therapy. So we pull them to the side and we mm -hmm. still do therapy them inside of the school district, depending on, again, the skills that they need to learn. Because sometimes it's social skills um, and they may not have any, you know, siblings at home. So it's like, how am I really going to work on like social play skills if, you know, they don't have anyone at home that I could actually practice it with them? Um, and then also mm -hmm. making sure, again, just like I've talked to, you know, OT, PT, um, speech therapist is making sure that the teacher is on board as well. And she knows whatever programming that I'm doing with the kid. So as long as, of course, mom, dad signs consent, I could consult with any of these people and provide mm -hmm. training. Have you, have you seen any kind of different in progression of kids as far as different financial backgrounds, different racial backgrounds? I know a lot of stuff and research kind of talks about development as far as us, as far as black individuals, we may not be getting the best kind of support 
with these type of issues? Yeah, um, a lot of times there isn't a lot of support or people just don't have the knowledge for whatever reason on the services that are available. Um, most of my clients are the lower socioeconomical um, areas. Um, most of them, clients that I have for the county are black and brown. Most of all of them are boys. Um, autism has higher rates um, with boys. And within the black community, um, we have we wait longer to actually get that diagnosis. And so to go back to the initial conversation, as far as early intervention, it's like, okay, we waited longer to get that diagnosis. And now, you know, some of those behaviors that they've been doing is like, they've been conditioned to do these problem behaviors, you know, since they was three and like, they've never gotten any type of intervention for it. And that's one of the downfalls as far as, you know, our community is like, sometimes we're in denial. Sometimes we, we don't get the treatment that we need. Sometimes we may want the treatment, but it's like, okay, well, I can't afford it, and but I don't qualify for Medicaid, so I don't know what to do. Or with the type of therapy that I do, like we have long waiting lists, especially um, under my job with the county. It's like people wait four years to actually come to my clinic and see me and my staff. That's just how long the waiting list is. Um, it's lots of private clinics, but if your insurance don't cover it, like, we expensive. So it's like, you know, you're, you're dealing with a kid that has these deficits and sometimes you want the support, but you, you can't get it or you don't know where to get it or, or how. Mm -hmm. What have you kind of seen as far as sacrifices that uh, parents have to make for their children? So like my previous guest, her child had autism and she's a physician and her husband quit his job. So he could help take care of her, bring her to appointments so she can reach all her milestones and have the best treatment that they can do. So I didn't know if anything on your end that you've seen that parents have to do on a consistent basis to help their children out. Yeah. So typically, I want to say in my career, I may have only interacted with as far as being the primary parent, maybe three or four fathers that were involved in their kids' um treatment in my whole career. And so typically it's the mom mm. that's having to make those sacrifices. So she may only work part-time because their kid having to come see me and have ABA therapy. They got to go to speech. They got to go to OT. They got to go to PT. They may receive your counseling services. They may have a social worker. And so it's like our kids with autism, typically they are involved in a lot of different therapies in, in order to make sure that your kid gets the most, you know, effective treatment as possible. And you're trying to do as much as you can. Anything that you hear of, like you're trying to make sure that they get, it's hard having a full-time job, like, because you're taking them to, you know, the speech over here on the North side, on the South side, you know, you have ABA therapy and, you know, these sessions, you know, are hours at a time. So unless you have like a good support system, it's hard trying to navigate, you know, all these different therapies and you may have other kids. So it's like, this may just be one. And then sometimes how, sometimes how it works is a parent may have multiple kids that have special needs. So it's like, I'm having to, they having to take, you know, Sarah to her ABA therapist and then they got to take Bobby to, you know, speech and it's hard with trying to juggle all those things. So like my heart goes out 
to um, the parents that are basically trying because worst case scenario, I've had parents that don't try and, Mm -hmm. and it's heartbreaking um, because like, you know, these resources are here available for you. And depending on, you know, if you have Medicaid or whatever funding source that is actually going to pay for it, it's like, okay, you didn't miss sessions. Like you, the parent is not complying with like implementing programming. I ain't seen your kid in two months. I'm about to discharge him because I have other people on my waiting list. But it's like, you know, mm-hmm. you don't want to do that because that'll affect the kid. But it's like, but mama keep counseling and I can fill this spot with somebody else that's going to take it and benefit from these services. <laughs> So, yeah, it's, it's, it's really hard. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you. What do you do in those situations? Like, you discharge them, you keep them. Like, do you have a duty to report them? Like, mom or dad's not doing what they're supposed to do. It's so many different levels right there. Yeah, I mean, I, I try to work with them as much as possible because I know the stressors that they have is like, you know, imagine, I could only imagine having a kid that has any type of special needs. And like I said, some of them have multiple kids with special needs and then just life in general. You never know what someone, you know, has to deal with on a daily basis, what their own struggles are, because a lot of times the clients that I have, their parents have their mental health issues as well. And so just like (laughs) one thing after another could exaggerate, you know, one issue. And it's like, this lady keep calling me about, you know, this therapy, I'm tired. I just got out of work and, you know, baby daddy issues. It's like, you just never know. So I try to give as much grace as possible. Um, But then I also have to think more. I'm a mental health professional, but it's also a business. So, and I need to get in, like, if you can't be here, there's another kid that actually needs my services right now as well. So I'm going to put you on pause whenever, you know, your life situation gets more stable, then, you know, feel free to contact me back. But I can't continue to, you know, hold your slot when it's another kid that really needs help right now as well. That may be more, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> consistent with treatment. All right. So me as a family medicine physician, I deal with a lot of patients who have mental health conditions, anxiety, depression, ADHD, OCD, a whole litany of things. How do you as a doctor not feel overwhelmed and take all of this home? I do (laughs) self-care. So Mm -hmm. I try to, as much as possible, I try to leave, you know, client issues, problems, you know, there either at the clinic or not try to go home and still continue to think about it. But it's natural. It happens. And so I make sure that I'm supporting my own mental health stability by doing things, you know, that I like to do that help me be compressed, whether it's going to the nail shop or getting massages. Um, enjoying nature, just taking a walk, walking around, enjoying friends, you know, things that I like to do. And also um, being able to decompress with someone else. So if I have to have my own counselor, a lot of mental health professionals, um, you may be a licensed professional counselor, licensed clinical social worker, a clinical psychologist. Um, One thing that we're told in grad school is you're going to need your own counselor to help you decompress. You're used to you know, taking on so many of other people's problems and even unconsciously like that weighs on you. Like I remember I would go to sleep at night. I'm still thinking about like clients programmings and doing safety plans. It's like, oh, like did they, you know, try to commit suicide today? Like issues like that. It's like, why am I thinking about this? Go to sleep. 
And so it's like we need our own way of decompressing from the issues that we take on from other people. And there's nothing wrong with it. Mm-hmm. I totally agree. I'd be doing the same thing, going to sleep. Like, did I put that order in? Or like for me, looking at labs and trying not to look at them right before I go to sleep. Because one time I looked at a lab and I saw somebody had HIV. I'm like, now I got to call them tomorrow and tell them that they have HIV. But now I'm staying up all night thinking about that and how that conversation is going to go. So we always got to find ways to kind of decompress. So another important thing is um, I know with my type of clients, sometimes they... I have to set boundaries early, <laughs> like even with parents. It's like, okay, well, mm-hmm. if it's the emergency, I'm probably not the person that you need to call. Like you need to take call 911 or at this point 988 um, or take them to the, the closest psychiatric hospital. Um, but if it's an emergency, do that. These are my business But hours. I trust you. I trust you. You're my the coolest hours. one out of all of them. Business hours from eight to five, <laughs> nine to five, whatever I choose it to be. And I mean, that's very important when you're working directly with people. And they initially talked about building that rapport. And so it's just like, I've had parents call or fathers call and it's like, okay, well now you're, you're not talking about your kid and this ain't got nothing to do with business. Like you tell them personal, like you can't, mm-hmm. I could talk to you about your kid, sir, but you aren't going to invite me to happy hour and asking where I'm going to brunch today. Like, no, <laughs> like I'm, I'm still a professional and that the boundaries is I don't cross it. That's what's up. Don't call me up So, <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about your business and your team. So tell me about your practice. So my current business that I recently started is called the Behavioral Wellness Academy. So we specifically just do applied behavior analysis therapy. So we either do it in the kids' home, we go to the schools, we do it in the community. I mean, I have clients that we may work on um, different skills inside the grocery store. So we may go to an HEB or to a Kroger, or we may go to the park or some of the trampoline houses, depending on, you know, whatever skills that we have to work on. And then also we do telehealth therapy. So um, may get on Zoom and do therapy that way. How important is it to have a great team to work with, especially in the mental health field? Well, with the type of therapy I do, it's very important. So my team consists of, um, I have interns, I have registered behavior technicians, which is the the lowest level of the behavior analysis hierarchy. And then there's also assistant level behavior analysts, which are board certified assistant behavior analysts. They have their bachelor's level. And then the master's level is board certified behavior analyst. And then I'm the doctorate level. So typically, if you're at the master's level or, of course, the doctorate level, we're not always the one that's implementing our programs. Our um, registered behavior technicians, our direct workers with the clients, they're the ones that's implementing the program. I may come once a month or, you know, once every other week and supervise my staff and make sure, you know, that they're implementing the program correctly. The parents are being trained. Um, the goals are being met or if there are any adjustments that need to be made. So I'm not there. So it's ultimately important for the person that's directly providing those services for them to know what they're doing and do it consistently. Um, because I, I'm not an overzealous like supervisor or manager, but I'm trusting that they're doing what they're supposed to do with the client outside of 
someone being over watching them. So they're working basically with a lot of autonomy because they may be in a kid's, you know, home for hours or, you know, at the school for hours and I'm not there. So they have to go through, of course, a lot of competency, you know, training with me. And then I just don't hire anybody. It's like you a reflection of me and my business. So <laughs> you are going to like, I only hire like the, <laughs> the high performers. The cream of the crop. Yes. <laughs> so, so as we kind of wrap up, if there is a parent out there who's listening, who their child was just recently diagnosed with autism, what kind of words of wisdom would you leave them? Autism is not a death sentence. Your kid's life is not over. They can still learn functional skills. Their behavior can still improve. They can still live, you know, a very wholesome, successful, um, fruitful life. So, but the thing is like, you have to get those, you know, services that they need as soon as possible. Don't wait. Cause you may have to, you may be on a wait list. You may wait till the kid is 12 years old, but now you wait four years for them to even be seen. So once you get past the getting the diagnosis, of course, have your feelings. Um, a lot of people have an emotional response from it. Once you get out of your feelings, then, you know, contact your local mental health authority, whoever is the um, early intervention office or services for your state and, you know, go from there. But don't not do anything. That's the problem. <laughs> do something. And I and how would they reach out to you if they're trying to get on your wait list? How would they hit you up for services? Not for brunch, but for <laughs> mental health services. Right. <laughs> no brunch <laughs> dates, guys. Um, if they want to contact me, they could email me at the Behavioral Wellness Academy at gmail.com. Okay. So I'll make sure to put that in the uh show description and the notes so y'all can reach out to her via that avenue do you have any social media handles you want people to follow you on uh you could follow me on instagram at trinika that's t-r-a-n-i-k-a-j-26 and if you want to see me serve all my looks and hairstyles um yeah follow me there that's what's up that's what's up so i always like to end my interviews with randy's random questions so you ready? I'm ready. All right. So question number one, why do you have so many birthday celebrations? Because I am a celebration. I feel like it shouldn't be one day out of the year that I should be celebrated. I feel like every time I walk out the house, it's a celebration. Every morning that I wake up, that was not promised to me. It should be celebrated. And I feel like I shouldn't have to subscribe to societal norms saying that my birthday was only on March 30th. How do I know my birthday was on March 30th? That's what man told me. I don't know that. So any day I pick or choose, it's my birthday. You getting a cake every time you go out. <laughs> so, Free cake. so many yeah. birthdays. Why was it important for you to go to an HBCU? Because I wanted the representation and the reflection of me. Um, for one, I wanted to get out of Bryan. So I was like, I'm going to college. Mm -hmm. Number two, I was like, well, I don't, I want to get away from Bryan, but like, I'm still scared and young, so I don't want to go too far. Um, and then mm -hmm. every morning when I was getting ready to go to high school, I would watch a different world. And so just going to the HBCU was like my only option. I was like, I'm going to a different world. Um, I'm going to PV. It's going to be, it's going to be just like different world. When I watch that every morning, um, 
I look like Whitley Gilbert <laughs> and I act like her too. <laughs> so it's like, I'm going to go to TV. I'm going to find me, um, what was the, uh, Dwayne? <laughs> Give me a Dwayne there. <laughs> I'm the AKA. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I didn't feel like my dreams, HPCU, AKA, I just don't have my Dwayne yet. <laughs> <laughs> He's coming. He's coming. So, Last question. This is a two-part question. It might be a hard one for you. You ready for it? Yes. Favorite Houston artist and favorite Houston song? Um. Ah, man. We made a scratch the back of her head on that question right there. She's like, ah, so many choices. Oh, man. Slim Thug to Beyonce. To doing the South Side, to Tops Drop, Fat Pack. It's so many different options. I, I'm going to have to go with, because I'm a little hood, um, Big Mo. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. And let me see, what's my favorite? I think it's called Choppers. Choppers. That's by Big Mo? I think so. Ooh, I'm going to have to look that up. I'm sure there's probably a, a YouTube video with it screwed and chopped with only like 2,000 views, and you probably did a 1,000 of them. Right. I have to go find it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. RIP, Vic Mo. But we let you off the hot seat. I appreciate you being on the podcast, sharing a lot of information, especially for Autism Awareness Month. Y'all make sure to go follow her on her social media channels. Hit her up as far as email so you can get more information about her practices, especially if you want your child being seen. Thank you so much for having me.